You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., and our pop culture, feminism, and politics as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing bikes, and in particular, Melody's research on bicycles, bicycle advocacy, race, gender, gentrification, and the intersections of all of those things. And we're super excited because it's kind of shocking that we haven't talked more about bicycles yet because that's sort of melodies, uh, one of her main things. So um, I have the pleasure of interviewing our lovely co-host, and we're stoked. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? But first, Rachel, that guest <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> She's pretty cool. Wow. Um, wow, you can find us everywhere on the internet, but first, um, you should subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already a review that's very helpful for new listeners to find us um you can check us out on facebook twitter instagram we have a spotify mixtape um if you're into um i'm doing this off script so you know in a closet uh if you're, if you're interested in supporting feminist media labor you can donate on our website uh one-time donation we also have a patreon account and as always you can email us uh, at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And a side note about our email address. Um, I know people love to Facebook Messenger us, and we love it too. Um, but not to get into like all the nitty gritty about why it's kind of complicated for us to respond via Messenger. If you do have any episode requests or you want to be a guest on our show, which we're always excited to get those messages, it's best for you to email us. That's kind of like our business communication tools so if you do uh send us a quick message on facebook don't be surprised if one of us just gets back to you real quick and says cool just email us and then we can go from there um and yeah like i said i'm sitting in a closet because i just got a new house and things are a little like crazy so i'm i'm like going off script this week that so was, thanks for your that was patience solid. that was good thank you but um, you would think that after all these months of doing the intro i would like know our tagline and i still yeah, but like, we didn't re- do it in, we in rely on our google doc though more than we think because it's there but yeah, i our script yeah it's true um i did want to say uh we have a new very generous patreon uh donator um or patron donor uh I don't, again, I don't know if people want to be identified with first and last names, but um, I will say thank you, Michelle. Thank you for your generous donation. We also do have a couple new iTunes reviews, but honestly, we are, um, we are running a tight ship here. Is that a phrase? Running a tight ship? I don't know if that's a phrase. Okay, great. Sounds good. Um, Hopefully there's not any, like, problematic roots of that phrase. Like, there are so many phrases, but... um, Anyway, we're a little bit in a time crunch, so I don't, uh, I'm not going to read those iTunes, new iTunes reviews right now, but uh, we love them and they're really important and helpful, so um, keep them coming and uh, we'll read some uh, in, in, in the next few episodes. Um, we'll, get, we'll get to reading more because we really like those. Um, so back to you being in a closet in a new house, holy moly, you, is it okay if I ask, you bought a house or you're saying your partner bought a house and you're living in it? How are you framing this? <laughs> is that okay to ask? I'm framing it as property is theft. Yes. <laughs> and I'm saving money in this new situation. Great. I'm paying for the house in my own way, using money, but property is still theft. Mm-hmm. You still have cred. It's okay. Um, um Yeah. But There's this a- closet is amazing for recording in. It is very small. Perfect. I can't yeah. even stand up in it. And a it's, new uh, studio. It is an amazing studio. I can't wait until the clothes are in here and then I can like hide in my sweaters. Great. Uh, <laughs> any other updates you want to give about your life? But that's like a giant one and we could do uh, like a whole episode on that oh, probably. Oh, I do. I want to give a shout out to my new neighbor, Rachel. We haven't even talked about this IRL. My new neighbor is a butch presenting woman who has season tickets to the Lynx nice. and also plays kickball and football. You guys no are going to be besties. Deal. 
And yesterday was blasting Beyonce while she was cleaning her deck. Ugh, I miss Minneapolis. That's like par for the course there. It is. And that's why I'm really excited (sighs) to be in the neighborhood I'm in. But anyways, so excited about my new neighbor. Because the problem of like getting a house in which you know you're going to be there for a long time Mm -hmm. is that the neighbors are just like, you just got to hope for the best. Right. You know? Totally. And we like hit the jackpot. So. Yeah. That's Shout great. out to my neighbor. Fantastic. What about you? What's up with you? Uh, just, I don't know, just busy. Uh, I taught, a, two weeks in a row, I taught a 6 a.m. yoga class, which means I have to be at the studio by 5.30, which means I have to be up by 5. And last night, I, like, didn't really sleep because I get nervous about missing my alarm when it's that early. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just tired and a little bit cranky about that. Um, but just, you know, school's going. My classes, my groups, my students in all of my classes are really great, so doing that um still honestly trying to unsettle and un, and fully unpack in the apartment there's still some odds and ends that haven't been settled um planning a housewarming party for this weekend which i'm stoked about because i love hosting and i honestly haven't been able to do a lot of hosting the past three years because i've lived in such teeny tiny shithole apartments um and now i finally have a little more space because uh, i'm sharing rent so yay good. yeah anyway so nothing too major i don't think uh my brain's not fully fully there right now but i don't i think that's about it so i think you sound great i'm a little crabby too with all the moving yeah so. i bet moving's rough um crabby killjoys yeah what now but here's a secret listeners we're gonna sound a lot less crappy crabby in like a minute because we actually recorded this interview with melody <gasps> a different you've broken day the i broke the fourth wall but with the power of, I mean, they know that when you get that Wayne's World transition on, they know it's magic. Magic things are happening. They know. They know yeah. that it's We usually don't travel. tell them what time dimension we are traveling to. I know, but I'm just going to let them know we're traveling to it. Well, because what if they listened to this intro and they were like, oh, they're in bad moods. I don't want to listen to them anymore. Oh, yeah. But I'll be like, <laughs> hey, hey, we time travel to the past when we weren't crabby. So <laughs> Less crabby. Yes. Yes. All right. Okay. So should we bring in our, our awesome guest, Melody Hoffman? We should. She's, yeah, a solid person. I think everybody's going to really enjoy what she has to say. Okay. I'm so excited to talk to her. And let's go. Well, hello. I'm sitting here with Melody Hoffman, author hello. of Bike hello. Lanes Are White Lanes. I'm so excited to have you on the show, Melody. Test, test, one, two, three. Can you hear me? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we wanted to, we'll, we'll just have a conversation about it, but I guess we can kind of act like I'm interviewing you, like you're a fancy mm-hmm. guest, because you are fancy. You wrote a book called Bike Lanes Are White Lanes colon, Bicycle Advocacy and Urban Planning by Melody L. Hoffman. And it was a book that was born of your dissertation, which I read in many versions. I was lucky enough to get a preview of all that. So do you want to just give us the summary of what your book is about? Do you want the elevator speech or do you want a more, uh, uh, whatever you call it, more detailed explanation? Give give the elevator speech and then we'll get the details as we talk as we keep talking. The one sentence one. Um, my project is about uh, community reactions to bicycle advocacy projects, including bike infrastructure and bikes, and the ways in which whiteness, class, uh, gender, and especially race plays into community reactions. So what do you mean? That's great. Concise. What do you mean by community reactions? So in my research, in my experience as a bicycle advocate for many, many years, I think I'm approaching like my 10 year anniversary as a bicyclist and advocate. um, 
I've been noticing lately some community reactions that are not positive and it's not so much the NIMBY thing, like not in my backyard, like never, I don't want this bike lane because cars are the only people that should be on the street. Mm -hmm. It's more like having these complex discussions about how a new bicycle lane or a new bicycle path represents gentrification or Mm -hmm. racism and how the community ties in um, their history in the neighborhood with current uh plans for biking and so it becomes for lack of better term like very black and white Mm -hmm. where you have people of color neighborhoods uh primarily speaking out against the bike advocacy movement which is very much dominated by middle to upper class white people and usually white men and so there's a clash that isn't necessarily about whether bicyclists deserve space on the road but it's about how these bike projects represent a deeper issue with racism in our country, which is kind of interesting to unpack. So totally, because one of the things you argue in your book is that obviously people of color communities wouldn't be arguing against bicycling itself because the majority of people who use bikes actually are, or not the majority of people that use bikes, but there are many, many people of color who do use bikes, right? Actually current, well, That's interesting that you bring up whether they're predominantly the people who ride bikes because um, our country does a bad job of counting cyclists. Um, So there's some census data that talks to people about whether they bike commute, which means I use my bike to get to work or run errands. And in that case, um, the the majority is lower income Latino men. Those are the people, yeah, that bike commute the most. And then there was another study done by the League of American Bicyclists that showed that the new majority is going to be people of color. Like they're the ones when you talk to them, most likely to engage in bicycling in the near future if they haven't already. Mm -hmm. And they just don't get the same responses from white people in that regard. Um, And then also, so one of the ways that different cities track how many people ride bikes is through bike counts where they have people like stand on the corners and literally count how many people bike by within an hour at a certain intersection. Mm -hmm. And some cities like Minneapolis for a while was counting gender. They're not anymore through the city. Um, And other, and a lot of other cities and counties will count gender, um, which I know is problematic. Um, But they do that. Mm -hmm. They don't, Basically, the only place I've actually heard about this is um, in Boston. Hmm. People will count people of color. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, again, you know, a lot of assumptions are being made there. But there's at least some attempt to count how many people of color are writing. We actually don't. Nobody knows. There's just, like, guesses. It's like the census, like I said. The new majority research was done over phone surveys, I believe, and some Mm -hmm. community outreach but we don't have hard numbers and it's really frustrating because um, the reason why we don't is, is really because people don't think it's an important thing to keep track of. So like the city of Minneapolis doesn't even think about that when they do their bike counts, they just want to know numbers. So, but I think it's, yeah, I mean, definitely that's super frustrating, but I think your study and what we do sort of in the critical humanities more generally talks about, So even if we don't have hard numbers, what do we do with cultural assumptions, with symbolic imagery, with mass media perceptions? And so I think when we think about bicyclists in the U.S., one of the things you point out is that media and, you know, cultural discourse wants us to think that it's either white men in spandex or like, hip white families driving, riding their bikes to Whole Foods or whatever the case may be. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, that public consciousness around it? Oh, totally. Yeah. And so I think this is why there's been some, this adds another layer to the conflicts that are seen um, in certain communities, because there is this perception that bike infrastructure and just biking in general is very much like a hip white thing to do. Um, And communities will think that those are where all the resources are going. So if I want, if there's a bike lane going in, they're like, oh, it's for the hipster white people. Mm-hmm. But they get that perception by looking at the media. And it, I mean, it's everywhere. But like some examples I can think of is like Urban Outfitters was selling a fixed gear bike for a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in Portland and Minneapolis, I know for sure there's apartments that are bike themed, luxury mm-hmm. apartments that are bike themed. So we just had one go in here called Velo Apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there's these high end apartments that they just sell this like bike aesthetic um, to people who don't necessarily bike but mm-hmm. want to, you know, be a part of that image. Have um, wheels on the wall and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's one in Portland. There's one in Portland that like has names of bikes as your apartment section. Like, oh, "Oh, do you want to get a Bianchi apartment or do you want to get a um, like a Trek apartment? They would never Trek is Trek is not cool enough. I don't know all the cool like yeah bike Italian bike names. Yeah, but they're like, oh, and the Bianchi is like two bedroom, and then the you know right, right whatever the kirin bike frame from japan that's a one bedroom so it's like it's really ridiculous and yeah. then there's the um shimono is the company from detroit who makes watches but now they started making high-end bicycles as well shinola shinola sorry yeah. no that's okay i only know because i spent my summer in Detroit and went to the Shinola store i was just um, gonna check with you but i was like that sounded right so i'm yeah. just gonna keep going with it <laughs> Um, yeah, the, yeah, I definitely saw that, that sort of imagery happening in that store for sure. Right. Um, so all of that to say, there's that image of biking, right. which is very much image based mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with like bicycling as a mode of transportation and the tensions that you feel when you're biking on a street with cars, you know, it has nothing that's, there's nothing about that image that actually represents what it's like to bike on the street. It's right. just pure objectification of the bicycle, if you will. Right. And when we focus on that hipster white person image, what are we, what's being left out of the conversation? What are some of the issues of actually biking on the street that you think we should be talking about rather than how can we accommodate, how can we make luxury apartments for hipsters that are mostly white? Yeah. Or if there's the um, accusation that, bicycle infrastructure is only being granted when, you know, these white middle-class people come and ask for it. Right. So there's like two forms of tension or two conversations being left out, I guess, um, that I've noticed in my research. One is that in these communities where new bike paths will go in, um, those communities had been asking for other street safety things for a long time, mm-hmm. but not getting them. And so in Portland, that was a big thing where they're like, we've been asking for pedestrian cross crosswalks on the street for decades where, you know, our children would get hurt getting hit by cars. Mm-hmm. And you all just kept saying you didn't have any money or you didn't follow through. But the minute the bicyclists say that they're, they feel unsafe. Oh, okay. Now we're all of a sudden going to make them a better bike lane, mm-hmm. you know? So there's mm-hmm. stuff like that, that they're, their community needs aren't, aren't being met. And it, I mean, it's not even transportation wise. Like when I was doing some research in Minneapolis, some people were like, I don't want to talk about this bike path because like my alley doesn't get plowed in the winter Mm -hmm. and I can't get my car out. So like, that's where I'm at. Like Mm -hmm. I could care less about this bike path going in, in my neighborhood. Like, sure. But like, I'd rather have our focus shifted elsewhere. Um, And of course, you know, the people who are pitching this bike lane, cannot help at all with this like alley issue right but to the community it's one and the same it's like street improvements and they still have things that feel are unaddressed Mm -hmm. so there's that and then the other conversation that gets left out when you just focus on how do we get middle to upper class white people safely to their job Mm -hmm. via bike lanes Mm -hmm. is that um like people of color are routinely harassed and in danger on the street and Mm -hmm. that's very much thanks to law enforcement and um, with Muslim people, it's like, you know, any Islamophobic person that walks by them, you know, so they're, they're facing a lot of danger on the street. Mm -hmm. And when bicycle advocates say, Oh, well, we'll just build them a bike lane in X community that has no bike infrastructure. And then they'll just start using it. You know, like if you build it, they will come. Right. But you know, in the last couple of years, some of the bike advocates who are interested in in equity um, have been really pushing this question of like, okay, but if they're, if people don't feel safe leaving their house Mm -hmm. and especially in a vulnerable state, such as riding a bicycle, um, then like, we're not going to get them on bikes if they just don't even feel safe leaving their house. Um, And in some ways people feel safer. 
I mean, this is based on an anecdote that I, um, that I listened to from my friend Harry, who is African American. And he was just telling me like when people in his, in his neighborhood who are also African American, they want to come downtown Sometimes they choose to drive because they feel more protected from the cops than if they're riding their bike Mm -hmm. because they can get slammed for running on the sidewalk. They don't have the right light. You know, it's Mm -hmm. easier to stop them on a bike. And so they'll sometimes choose to drive a car. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, there's been plenty of black people killed in cars by police, but, you know, they feel safer in a car than walking or biking. So and that is a conversation that like bike advocates in the mainstream, just like have not had ever. Right. And so, you know, well, that needs to be brought up more. Absolutely. Because I think, I think that's one of the most like important and profound parts of your research is that you're trying to change the conversation on what it means to be safe. Because I think, um, mainstream perceptions of safe neighborhoods and who is and isn't safe is, you know, people think about like, Oh, white people going to, poor majority people of color parts of town and feeling unsafe. But that whole conversation assumes, you know, who deserves to feel safe, who, you know, safe for whom. And when we think about a gentrified neighborhood, because this conversation also comes up in in, um, conversations of gentrification, uh, you know, people who advocate for gentrification as a positive thing talk about creating safer neighborhoods. And that assumes, that presumes that safety is a right for certain people and not for others. Um, And when we think about people of color in gentrified neighborhoods and how that is not safe often for people of color and poor people of color in particular, that uh, that's such an important thing to turn on its head uh, because I think so often, you know, when people are like safe neighborhoods, dangerous neighborhoods, there's this presumption of, of safety and danger that is so socially constructed and so fucked and so racist and classist. So thank yeah. you for that contribution because that's so important. Um, uh, yeah. Can I just jump on that real please, quick with the yeah. gentrification thing? Yeah. Because I've had, um, I say the same thing and I should like, there's some complexity to that in that in gentrifying neighborhoods, there are some people like, let's say like a Latino homeowner who's been there for like 13 years, right. Mm-hmm. Would probably like roll their eyes when the like fancy wine bar moves in and what, you know, other signifiers. Right. But um, as homeowners, they, there's lots of people who would prefer like the gentrification because it does cut down on crime. It's not like people are like comfortable with crime in their neighborhood and they're like, right. Of course. Hope. But then also, um, their, their property values go up. So then if they want to sell their house, they're going to make some money. But in these neighborhoods, it's often majority rental properties, you know? So there are some homeowners that have built up equity and can sell at a good price or enjoy the higher property values and the lessening of crime, but at the expense of losing their culture, because often these communities have built up their rest, you know, restaurants that restaurants, bodegas, shops, whatever that, you know, reflect their needs. And so those often get canned. So I just want to say it, it really, really impacts renters. Um, yeah. Those are the people that are especially screwed by this because their rent goes up and then they're out. Well, um, and even if the homeowner is able to sell their house and make money, they're still driven out of their home. Totally. You yes. So, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And that also assumes that solving crime means putting in wine bars and urban outfitters instead of like addressing issues of poverty that create crime in the first place um so that's, good point that's, booyah that's that um they don't call us killjoys for nothing <laughs> for nothing that's right um <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about i know you've done you know you're you're explaining all of these problems and as a white lady you're trying to resist and and speak to some of those problems but i also know you know as as we often do when we like learn these critiques we're learning them from the people on the ground so can you tell me more about the resistance that's happening by people of color communities that you researched and work with yeah so the two different ways that i've seen people resisting is one having people people of color primarily try to take over seats of power in bicycle advocacy organizations and you know that's pretty exhausting it takes a lot of time and energy but that's one way like 
in the Minneapolis Bicycle Coalition, for example, this wasn't like a hostile takeover or anything, but um, there's now a woman of color that is on the board, that is the board president of the coalition, mm-hmm. you know? So like, that's really important. Um, and obviously people are working with these coalitions to diversify. That's like one strategy. Um, the other strategy I see is uh, people creating their own spaces for bicycling and creating their own spaces to just dis- discuss what their needs are in the bicycling world. And so in Minneapolis, that's like the, we have Grease Rag, which is WTF only spaces for rides and bike maintenance. There's um, Slow Roll, which actually was born out of Detroit. Um, Chicago has a really big one. Um, Obai, who runs Slow Roll Chicago, actually got like a huge award from um, for his work in lower income people of color neighborhoods with biking. Mm-hmm. And so like St. Paul here in Minnesota has, has started a slow roll. Um, so there's, you know, there's like, you can either invest in the, the organizations that exist and try to diversify. Um, but I think some of the more powerful resistance comes from, you know, creating your own spaces in your own groups to work. Um, right. But, you know, with advocacy, then it, it gets tricky because then, white people in power want to use your organization as um, kind of justification or validity for a project. Right. So they'll be like, oh, well, this, you know, Northside bicyclists, many, you know, Northside Minneapolis is where um, our largest African-American population is. And they're like, well, you know, they signed on. And so, you know, right. Those black people want it. So we're cool. Right. 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 Uh, So it's tricky. You know, it's tricky. It's like the Malcolm X versus MLK kind of thing. Yeah. The strategy, but right. um, those, yeah, those are the two things that I've been seeing. Um, but I think like the most kick-ass resistance that I ever saw was in Portland um, when they were talking about that North Williams bike lane, and the community came out and they're like, "This is racist!" Like, yeah, that was like the most powerful resistance because it really started a nationwide conversation about something that people had been feeling and thinking of for a really long time. But nobody really came out and said it in a public forum. And thankfully, there were journalists around to capture things and, you know, spread it nationwide. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Can you, um, yeah, thank, uh, thanks for uh, de- describing all of, the, all of those things that are happening. Um, one of my favorite parts of your work, and I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, can't remember if it made it into the dissertation slash book, but um, you wrote about uh, bicycle advocacy and hip hop. Can you talk about that a little bit? That is like some of my favorite stuff too. Um, It's actually that work ended up in this book called Culture on Two Wheels that just came out with the University of Nebraska Press. And um, that book, yeah, that book is media analyses about bicycling Um, And so the editors are in English department. So it was very English oriented. So it's like poetry and literature. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I come in with my weird music video and hip hop (laughs) analysis, but, (laughs) but that's cool. Um, So I looked at in that research, um, these two groups, one is the scraper bikes in Oakland, which um, this guy who started the scraper bikes, the concept was to make your bike look like a lowrider car mm-hmm. and to keep kids busy and out of trouble with gangs and drug stuff. Um, speaking of gentrification, what was once Oakland, where a lot of people of color lived, um, time out also. I'm wondering where everybody in Oakland is moving to because that town is getting tore up. Have you heard about that, Rachel? No, I don't think I know what you're talking about. Oh, just like, the, you know how the San Francisco situation, like all oh, the gentrification and pr- it's price hikes. Yeah. yeah like it's, yeah. it's moving all the way over to Oakland. Right. And, yeah. um, my colleague was just there and he's like, it was so nice. There was all these breweries. And I was like, Oh, that does not sound like the right. Oakland I knew. You know, he's right. like, yeah. it was supposed to be dangerous, but it was just real nice. Uh, and you were like, well, no, that means. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyways, so in Oakland, big gang and drug problem, um, a way to keep kids off of the street. Also a way, a different way at looking at bicyclists because, or at looking at bicycling, because what was important to these kids was making their bikes look really cool mm-hmm. and shiny and, you know, blinged out. 
I'm white. Sorry for all the um, corny descriptors. (laughs) But they also made a, a video um about scraping on their bike and they you know it had millions of views they got a lot of attention for it um and so again it's just like it's a different way of looking at bike advocacy it's like getting people on bikes through music through doing fun stuff like making a music video mm-hmm. and making your bikes look real cool um and then paralleling that with a group in north minneapolis called the YN rich kids mm-hmm. who are i haven't heard from them in a while so i don't know what their deal is but uh, they're this, oh, they're the, they're the kids that did the hot Cheetos and Takis song. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, hot Cheetos and Takis, hot Cheetos and Takis. I can get enough of these hot Cheetos and Takis. I got my hangers staying red and I cannot get it up. That song. We know the music we're using for this episode. Okay. <laughs> so, wow. I haven't thought of that song in a while. So they did a bike song called Swerve. I'm on my bike. And it's like the best video ever but it's just all about them biking around the cities Mm -hmm. and so again like looking at how younger kids promote biking and it really is through hip-hop it's really through music um and they were all riding really cool bmx bikes and so one of the arguments i made is that like aesthetics is very important to this demographic Mm -hmm. and and aesthetics is not often discussed Right. In terms of bringing people into the biking world, um, aesthetics are very important. They will push it on like moms. They'll be like, get this cute Amsterdam inspired bike for right. your ride to the grocery store with your two kids, you know, in right. this very like, here's, here's an a thousand dollar bike that you can get and you're going to look really cute in it, you know, right. which is fine. I mean, that's great. Like, I'm really glad that she's biking to the grocery store with her kids. Yeah. Um, but there's other groups that we could hit up with aesthetic stuff. And um, it's, it was just like an obvious hole in advocacy work um, right. as seen through these people creating their own media and creating their own messages. Yeah. Um, and there was this other guy, too, that I brought in in my later research, this like like kind of hardcore rapper. Um, and he has a song, Young Rob, about his fixie. Mm-hmm the bikes with no gears and he rides around town topless with like tons of tattoos, smoking cigarettes or joints and like drinking alcohol, like while he's biking. Yeah. So like not the best representation of bicycling ever, but it's definitely an example of how people want and choose to bike, you know? Right. Yeah. So, and often, you know, like your earlier question about media representation, Um, In the mainstream, these, um, you know, people, younger people of color are not often used in bicycle marketing unless it's this like tokenizing advocacy outreach kind of poster thing, you know, the poster child, the the one black. Can you be the one black person on a bike? Um, So it's also very empowering to create your own media and to, um, you know, fill in a representational hole that the mainstream media you know, has actively chosen to create. So totally. Yeah. Um, when you were describing the, um, the pitch to the moms about the cute aesthetics, it just, I wondered if you could speak more toward, um, the intersections of race and gender and just your thoughts on, uh, you know, we, we've, we've mostly been talking about men until you heard a comment about, about, um, the moms. So, uh, could you just discuss, uh, yeah, just women of color more, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, what's interesting in the advocacy, advocacy circles is I'm going to vocalize something that is discussed, but I'm not, um, saying that I like agree with any of these statements. Okay. Um, so women of color and I am not one. So let I'm, you know, I'm just regurgitating things that I hear, especially in like, there's middle to upper class African American men that I'm very familiar with, um, in Minneapolis. And so I, you know, kind of hear their perspective a lot, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, women of color in terms of safety on the street, of course, that is still very real. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting, what gets kind of tossed around is the need to look, like hair hair comes up as as a barrier a lot Mm -hmm. um and this is true with helmets and i can just speak to this because i've definitely worked with women of color that have big dreads or weaves in where you can't put a helmet on like it like Mm -hmm. literally doesn't fit 
on your head. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't make helmets for women of color who have hair. (laughs) Like they make it for white people with thin hair. I mean, it's just like so obvious that that's what's going on. And my friend Rebecca, who um, is a person of color, she had a beautiful, huge fro for years. Mm -hmm. But when she started getting more into biking, she cut all of her hair off and she told me it was like mainly so she could put a helmet on, you know? So they, they really haven't figured out a way to make helmets that, um, would reflect different people's hairstyles. Mm -hmm. Um, but also some of those hairstyles, if you sweat, the style starts breaking down. And so there is this very real conversation happening about, okay, so you want to maintain your like cultural capital in your, in your subculture, Mm -hmm. Um, and then we're also going to encourage you to bike, but there's like clashes there. And so, um, of course not, not all women of color, but that's just definitely a conversation that comes up, but then, okay. So there's that, that's like one thing about beauty and, uh, and I do like my own personal opinion is like, there's ways to bike. Um, I understand the hair situation. Like you spend hundreds of dollars on your hair. You're not going to like go biking and ruin it, you know, but I think there needs to be more internal conversations about like, okay, well, this is what I do to like, you know, make sure that my hair doesn't frizz out or yeah, I just don't go biking when it's hot out. You know, those are conversations that need to be held, you know, in, in spaces like, like I was mentioning the grease rag spaces. Um, they even have like a a women WTF, POC only space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the beauty thing. And it's also like this under this like assumption that like women have all this time to like bike around. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's like very, it adds a whole other level of logistics that have to happen during the day. Mm-hmm. And so when they're just like, Oh yeah, it's just super easy. Just get this bike and then you can just go to the grocery store. It's like, okay, well I have two kids. Right. And they're not going to sit here and I'm tired and I don't want, like, I want to drive my car, you know? So there's this under, this lack of understanding of what it's like to be poor working class, um, living paycheck to paycheck. Like you have stresses in your day and mainstream advocates would say, oh, well, it's like really peaceful. If you bike, it'll help with your stress level. And it's true. It does. But like, you know, sometimes it's just not the most convenient thing and it, you know, there are cheap ways to like get to the grocery store with a milk crate or, you know, you don't need these big caravans for your children to sit in. Um, but there is this assumption that, you know, you have expendable income and time and energy to figure out how to bike commute to the store, you know? So, I mean, I would love it. I just feel like, and again, this perception thing of like, oh, well, it's for those rich white ladies who can afford the the gear, you know? I don't have the gear, so I can't do it um, unless it's my only option. And then I'm going to bike to the store. But women of all, um, and again, we don't have hardcore numbers on it, but like women have always been biking at a lower rate than men um, for risk aversion issues and beauty and all, you know, lots of reasons. It's it's different for every woman. You could ask them and I'm sure they would like, you know, tell you why, but Well, yeah, so. and I think that um, sort of, con- or not conclusion, or that sort of reflection on on all these sort of anecdotes and research that that you've that you've done on that um, is a testament to the need for multiple forms of environmentally cost efficient means of transportation. And so, whether that's biking or more access to public transit, which we also know is incredibly racist, and you don't get bus lines in particular neighborhoods and things like that. Um, that, you know, that conversation needs to be happening on multiple fronts because of those reasons that biking maybe isn't for absolutely everybody. Um, and finding ways to make it inclusive for people who, who it is accessible for and et cetera, et cetera. Cause we haven't even touched on like disability. So, um, yeah, and that's, that's honestly something that I can't speak on too greatly. Um, that's just like, but I know that there's been some conversations with bike share about how to make bike share more mm-hmm. accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how far those conversations are going. Um, but yeah, that's a whole other, a whole other topic, right. um, right. that I just can't say much about because it's an emerging thing and I haven't done much work on it, but obviously support any progress that can be made in that regard. Right, right. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, but I was just, I wanted to know, cause we actually haven't talked about it even in real life, uh, how the, how the book talk went and if there were any, um, you know, any questions that you got there that, you know, that felt like 
challenged you or that you want to share with us or just anything about that experience? Yeah, so I gave a book talk in Minneapolis to celebrate the release of my book, Bike Lanes or White Lanes, available now <laughs> um, through Amazon and University of Nebraska Press. Also, soon to be an audio book. They're going to produce that. I know. Are you going to do the audio? No, they don't let me. Oh, Mel, that's so cool, though. I know. That's I know. amazing. Maybe maybe I could audition for my own book yeah. reading, but it's through <laughs> a company, and yeah. they just do the whole thing. But um, So I gave the talk, and it, the Minneapolis Bicycle Coalition hosted it. But what we did is we gave 50% of the seats to people of color, like oh. reserve seats, yep. um, and the rest, you know, WTF, um, and then, you know, whoever is left over, mm-hmm. which is white guys. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. I actually didn't get challenging questions, um, and I gave, you know, a talk very similar to the kind of the earlier stuff that I was saying in our interview today, but what really came out is this conversation that started to happen between the people of color in the room, Mm -hmm. and so they just started sharing their own experiences and asking each other questions, and I just kind of facilitated it as my teacher's skills would allow. Right. Um... And something that I didn't actually notice right away, but the host did, was that no white men spoke the oh. entire time, which at a bike event is crazy. Yeah. Like, that's just oftentimes, even if it's, like, about equity, you have to, like, tell the white dudes to stop talking. Right. But I think because the event was set up, that was it was very explicit and very clear that people of color were the priority Mm -hmm. that it created a space and an understanding of who was going to be able to speak the most. Um, and so that was like really great to see. It was an experimental move by the coalition and I think it worked out really well. And I encourage listeners if, if you are also planning events or, or in that arena to really try it out. Like we didn't get pushback. Um, it was a really smooth process and you know, there was some white, tears at some point like people were a little frustrated but um I will say like some of it though is as a white person it's interesting because it's not so much anger as to like why people of color get priority it's more like I don't even know if I should be here Mm -hmm. because other people are prioritized so much you know Mm -hmm. and so it's just like well can I even sit here like maybe I shouldn't even come because you know and so it because I think white people aren't used to being, um, like very verbal, you know, yeah, like visibly like told, like you're not a priority. And so, um, and also if you're like a white justice, you know, racial justice person, you're like, well, you don't want to overstep your bounds because it's like very clear, like a space for POC. And then you don't want to like be the white idiot that like, right takes up too much space so there was very much a lot of like and I was glad to do it but I was like no 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 you were like super welcome like please be here like Mm -hmm. but you know it was just really great to see that like a people of color only discussion happened and I just kind of was facilitating so that was that was the best part and no not not challenging questions because I talked a lot more about people of color in public space being in danger Mm -hmm. and so with that approach there wasn't much to like argue like yeah Yeah, totally so I was just glad to be able to foster a space in which we could like have these conversations because it's not very common in the bike advocacy world for that to go down totally well and I also just want to note I mean I think it's amazing and awesome that you that you did that for the bike community world and also just like give you kudos as an academic like for those of our listeners who, who don't know the world of academia very much like this is not the norm. Like professors taking their research and making it publicly accessible is not the fucking norm at all. And so Melody, you're doing like really incredible, important work and your research is actually making a difference in people's lives. And, um, you are the best. Thanks Rachel. That's so nice to say. Well, it's very true. And I'm so glad you gave, you know, some time to come on the show. We're just, we're, we're big fans of you here at FKJ PhD. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, I'm so, yeah, thanks for inviting me. I mean, I've heard lots about this podcast. It sounds really cool. Um, really love the music you all choose. You know, I haven't heard much, you know, I just listened to like a couple minutes of that. I think I listened to the Prince episode. That was really nice. Fun. Uh-huh. yeah. LOL. <laughs> cool. Okay. We're gonna, you want to Wayne's roll this out into our 
final segment? I think that that is much preferred when we do interviews to do that. It's true. That sounded more like a computer than Wayne's World, but you knew what was happening. Uh, wow, thank you, me, for such a wonderful interview. I'm really smart and well-read and aware of all the issues. Actually, thank you to Rachel for taking the time to interview me about my book. Um, Rachel's not with me right now. I'm going to finish out the episode by myself. If you are interested in getting a copy of my book, Bike Lanes Are White Lanes, it is available at the University of Nebraska Press website. I will link to that in our blog and other social medias. There is a discount code of 30% off if you use code S16AS. 30% off at University of Nebraska Press by using code S16AS. I will have that information on the blog as well. Um, And so I mentioned this public talk that I gave this past week. And on the blog, I will also link to a Facebook event page that laid out more of what the public talk was going to be about. I wrote a blog post that framed the public talk, which ended up focusing more on the public safety element of people of color, like I talked about in the interview, versus my earlier research that really dug into those three different cities. And I didn't give a good synopsis of like what each case study was about, but um, real quick, like in Milwaukee, I look at this 24-hour bike race and how issues of the segregation line in Milwaukee kind of comes to fruition in the bicycle event. It's an event that I've been a part of for nine years now, um, so it's really near and dear to me, but there are some racial issues that I talk about. In Minneapolis, I talk about uh, a greenway that went in and a proposed greenway that is in the process of being built, hopefully, um, and the community tensions that surround that. And then in Portland, I mentioned, I talked about this more in depth, but the North Williams Bicycle Lane. And so that's how I, I break my work up is into these three case studies. So uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thank you so much to all of our listeners for continuously giving us support and feedback and calling us out. We just really appreciate it all. Um, And we wouldn't be here without y'all. So thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Bye. WTF power. So much easier when it's by yourself.
Why are rich kids dot com?